Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 73. We have the same crew here as always. Azil, say hello. Yeah! And Griffith, say hello. Hey. I was told by somebody recently that you guys should uh, say who you guys are. And that makes complete sense um, for people that are starting the show. It's just that after doing this for three years, I think we're in our fourth year now. It's just like, surely by now you guys know who we are. Listen uh, to another episode. Don't you know, know who I am? I, I get it. I get it. I get it. But still, it's just a little weird for us to say. Yes. It's still me since 2012. It's been a while since we recorded. Uh, it took a little bit of a holiday break. Since the last time we recorded, there was a, a new trailer for the new animation. Oh, yeah. I can't call it the new series. I can't call it the new movie, because we don't know what the fuck it is. The new Flash animation? <laughs> no, it's the new PS2 game, the new PS2 animation, uh, Berserk the Black Swordsman. It's going to actually be out on PS2. As yeah, well. direct to PS2 video animation, Berserk. I don't know. We don't actually know, but uh, either way, the anime trailer, the new animation trailer, debuted at Comicat at the end of December. So we've now seen this thing in action, or at least uh, a promotional t- teaser of what it will look like in action, and it looks choppy and shitty, pretty much. Uh, it looked cheap. The supporters for it keep focusing on this one panel where you can actually see actual drawing animation of guts, like the close-up of his face. But the rest of it is really sloppy CGI. Uh, and it's just like the first trailers we got for the movies where there were some, you know, nice scenes in it. And then, you know, in the actual scene, it was just shit. So I thought the uh, I thought the trailers for the, the movies and like those even those preview screens that were like photographed off of some monitor, probably mm-hmm. of some editor or something. Mm-hmm. I thought those were a lot better looking. I'll be honest, except for, again, that one frame. Which is like, you know, okay, they drew a nice picture of Guts in animation. Like, you know, there's yep. your, your A cell. and that, But that was it. Everything else looked horribly mechanical and uh, and CGI. I mean, it just looked really uh, inauthentic. Well, the problem is that, you know, at this point, I think it's worth saying. The problem is not that it's CGI. Because, like, I've seen some anime with CGI that looks... Like or, bad CGI. Yeah, it's, it's just <laughs> that it's really, really shitty, you know? I mean... It doesn't matter if it's 3D or 2D or whatever. It's just bad, you know? So, yeah. Someone on Reddit uh, compared uh, the Terminator in, the t- in Terminator 1 walking towards the screen <laughs> with the, the, the shot of Guts walking towards the screen. It, it does match up fairly well. Yeah. In terms of the shitty animation quality of the time. It's 1984 levels of animation technology being used. Yeah, it was stop motion, you know? Fucking stop yeah, motion. Exactly. Jesus Christ. It looks like stop motion in this trailer. And probably um, the overall quality of the project will be more Terminator Genesis, though. Unfortunately. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. So we don't know who's doing it still. Um, not many anime, not many answers came from Comicat other than that trailer. So we don't know who's behind the actual animation. There's no studio name. We don't know the medium it's coming out on. We don't know a release date other than 2016, or really what sections it will cover. We know it's Black Swordsman guts. So. I mean, based on the promos, I would say it will cover portions of both Black Swordsman arc and uh, Conviction, specifically Lost Children chapter. But who really knows at this point? You know, like, why would you think it will cover some part of the Black Swordsman arc? I'm just because of that promo in particular, because that promo comes from, you know, the brand. Honestly, yeah. I mean, I'm not convinced, but yeah, who knows? We'll see. Yeah. I mean, I, I, well, you know how the... Uh, 
97 anime included basically one episode of kind of a mishmash of yeah. the Black Swordsman yeah. arc, you know, that section. I think they could do the same here. Like, maybe the opening scene is just basically the Black Swordsman arc, you know? Yeah. And, then the, and the rest of it focuses on lost children or something. I don't know. You know, like, why not? But uh, I don't know. They don't seem to have enough imagination for me in order to do that. So, I don't know. Yeah. We'll see, I guess. Um. I, I still think it's a little weird that we don't know the studio name yet. I mean, you know, we've seen arguments on both sides that it's it's definitely Studio 4C, or it's maybe definitely that, not Maybe Studio that 4C. ad is like, you know, it's a pitch to studios, like, hey, does anyone want to animate this for us? We really want to release this project. Here's what we've got Frankly, so it doesn't yeah. really matter to me who animates it, because it's pretty bad, you know, so... It's not just a matter of, like, who cares who's doing it? They're not doing a very good job of it. So, well, that's what I was going to say was, like, it's weird that they're obfuscating who's doing it, but even if we knew, I'm not sure, like, at what point would it generate excitement, you know, or reinvigorate interest? Because, like, either it's, it is it is Studio 4C, in which case the bottom drops out, for, for me in particular anyway, like, well, it's going to be complete shit. Or even if it's somebody else at this point, like, who, who would it be that would change my mind about this project at this point? Pretty much nobody. Toei totally uh, Animation? Huh? <laughs> I just I made a joke. Toey. Oh, Toey. Yeah, sure. So, you know, we don't really know, but we'll find out more about this uh, moving forward. Someone asked me if we were going to cover each individual release of this animation. Like, I don't I don't think so. I'm not very excited about it right yeah. now. I'm covering it as an administrator of a, of a Berserk forum, not out of my own personal interest, basically. Frankly, before oh, that's you... A, that's, pretty, that's a damning uh, situation for the animation, yeah. yeah. You remember those movie reviews? Those were fucking painful. I don't remember a third one. Or did we do the third one? We absolutely did the third one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was... Yeah, it was not good. It was episode 36. Before you started talking about this, I had already forgotten it existed, to be honest. I, I'm kind of in the same camp, yeah. I had it written down in my notes, and it's a good thing, or I would have forgotten about it. So anyway, not, else is, not a lot is else is happening in Berserk. You know, we're on a break from now until the beginning of summer, or actually summer, sometime in summer, 2016. So probably a good six more months, five more months at the earliest until we get word of another berserk i do think between now and then we'll probably get volume 38 uh i don't know what the cover is going to be interested to see if it'll be griffith or not it would make sense if it was anyway we're here primarily to do our reread continue our reread uh when we left off last time we had almost finished up volume 17 we ran out of time two episodes actually like an episode and a half before the very end so we're going to hopefully finish up that along with the first half of 18. Uh, that's an ambitious goal for us at the pace we've been doing these recently. But that's where I'd like to go. I think it's a nice halfway point for 18. If we don't get there, oh well. Uh, if we do, that'd be great. So we're going to kick it off uh, with Azil leading the charge. Azil, yours is actually towards the end of an episode. It's kind of a weird split. We, we stopped this right as Guts sets out from Godot's place. Yeah, right off the bat, what I like about this uh, is the way Mira messes with the temporality of the scene. So we, we just saw Guts uh, get back to Godot and uh, because it's what matters, you know, he's looking for Cask and everything. Then, you know, he, he leaves and, you know, goes on uh, that trip to find her. Then we cut off to uh, the... Holy Iron Chain Knights, and that's a month earlier. And I like that because it makes sense narratively uh, to put down the context of what 
uh, Albion is, what actors are in play there, and everything before Guts gets there. So we get that uh, that flashback, uh, some things that I like. And uh, yeah, and I also love that shot. You know, you got that in two-page uh, shot of the refugees going. You got the castle in the distance, uh, Farnese, Azan, Serpico in the front, and that long chain of refugee going, going back. And I just love the way that's depicted. It feels very, you know, I don't know, almost like a painting. Yeah, it actually um, it reminds me of um, oh man, I can't remember the name of the movie at the, at the top of my head, but oh, Aguirre. Aguirre had these long mountain tracking shots of long, yeah, uh, similar similar to this, multiple levels of depth of you know soldiers crossing huge mountain ranges, um, and, and yeah, this whole section actually is introducing us to uh, this problem that is kind of surrounding Albion and these refugees who are being driven out of their homes because of either plague or famine or now the new threat of the Kushans. So this becomes a major factor in the volumes to come. So it's nice that we're being introduced to it yeah. you know, immediate, immediately. Yeah, we actually these pages actually give us a lot of information. Like you said, we get the confirmation uh, that the Kushans have been you know, uh, assaulting Windham. We get more details uh, about the location of the monasteries that is near the Midland border, but not a part of Midland proper. We also right. get, you know, a confirmation that the plague, famine, and war are all working together to create that current condition where all these refugees are converging together. So it's something that for the reader, if you pay attention, you can feel that, you know, there's, uh, what says, more at play there, like the, the God Hand is uh, beyond that. So I actually like that. It's very dense, like these three three pages you get are very very dense we also mm -hmm. get to see uh, some commentary on the complicated politics involved between the Holy See Midland and the Kushans so and that moves on to Farnese who gets trashed for her failure of uh, apprehending guts and before we go into the council real quick I yeah. just wanted to point out Serbico makes a good point here it's a really small aside in that he's basically saying are, are the Holy See taking this Kushan incursion seriously if they're launching this you know inquisition yeah. at this moment you know shouldn't they be aligning the resources to help defend the continent you know they're like no we have our own shit to do I think it ex kind of exposes kind of a, a weakness or a, an overconfidence of you know, the Holy See in general in terms of how they see this invasion playing out you know they, I think they haven't quite got the message yet that this is actually the end for them you know well you know one thing I like is that. It shows, you know, it's very realistic in the way politics are depicted. It's true, I might have, you know, skipped that a bit quickly, but basically, the fact Midland is uh, in trouble is not necessarily a bad thing for them, and they don't really care that much, even though Midland is their ally. Mm. So it's a bit, that actually comes back to play when uh, the group gets to Ritanis, you know, and uh, we actually get to see that nobles are quarreling between uh, who did what and, and so on. And yeah, you can tell that the uh, the Holy See uh, actors and allies and everything are already planning to divide Midland f between themselves. So, yeah, they are overconfident. And at the same time, I think they are not very concerned. But it feels, I don't know, to me, when you look at uh, European war and policy and history, it's actually pretty, you know, realistic in how it's depicted. So I, I like that. Sure. And I like that. It's something I say often, but these details, you know, uh, you know, really expand our view of the, you know, Berserk world. We don't get much, but it's enough to give us a sense of uh, wider things there. So, yeah, to get back to what I yep. was saying about uh, 
Farnese, yeah, she gets trashed at the council for failure. We get a little flashback of that. And it also, we also get, uh, a confirmation that the troops are just, you know, the sons of nobles. They're just a decoration. They're not meant to see real combat. So, yeah, again, you know, in just like two pages, you get such a nuanced way to say things where she, uh, Jose, like she disagrees she, or she's outraged that her troops are seen as being like mere ornaments. And, you know, she gets talked back because she shouldn't say such a thing, but that's clear what's, you know, uh, implied and everything. It also implies that because her family is a dominant one, she doesn't get punished for that, but otherwise she would have. So you get all this sense of, uh, you know, rival families vying for influence and power through financial donations and manipulating uh, the, the church and everything. So it's, a, you know, it's very complex, at the same time very dense. And, uh, yeah, I, I really have to appreciate how Mira did that. Yeah, it's the first word of the Vandemian family for her. And, you know, we get to a little bit of insight into her background in this scene. But, yeah, you're right. Two pages, and then you, just, you can see the wall of text that's here. Uh, I really love this scene. Uh, I wish we got to see more of these kind of things. And, obviously, it's not like I believe that the Holy See holds some secret knowledge. Although they do to an extent, they have knowledge of the prophecies. And I would love to know more about those. But it's interesting that we only get this one glimpse of them. This, you know, this large power controlling the entire continent, you know, we only get pretty much these shadowy faces of them and that's it. And I appreciate them as sort of just, yeah, these shadowy figures that are just, you know, laying down sort of these, uh, as As was pointing out, all it's all sort of self-serving, bureaucratic things. It's not for like the good of, you know, the religion or affiliated states or anything <laughs> like that. It's just, you know, whatever is sort of politically expedient and... Yeah, yeah, it, it strikes uh, very true. One thing uh, I find, you know, that really reinforces what Griff just said is uh, th- that scene ends with them dismissing her reports about, the, you know, the hypothetical relationship between Guts and the Falcon of Darkness. And rather, they prefer to focus on uh, what's newly come up, which is uh, uh, dreams of the Falcon of Light. And, mm-hmm. you know, like, even here it's made clear that their interest is primarily to spin it so that it will reinforce their power and their position. Like, you know, it doesn't matter if it's actually a real miracle. They don't really care. What they care about is <laughs> making making sure it plays in their, you know, favor. So, you know, it's interesting because, like you said, these guys, they do have some knowledge. They do have some resources. But, yeah, mostly they're just very petty and uh, focused on just, you know, their political and uh, financial power. I absolutely love that. Yeah, the way this scene ends. They dismiss her, and they're basically talking over her. Like, she's not even a point. She's As she's walking away from the entire scene, you can kind of overhear that they're talking about, well, shit, we should probably get a handle on this Falcon of Light thing, you know? Yep. I thought that was really cool. They want to control it. They want to have knowledge of this power that could be a thing in the future. Yep. Trying their best to kind of, you know, cobble together governance over something they have no control over. <laughs> Yeah, and meanwhile, Farnese herself is still, she's still haunted by the night she spent with Guts. You know, we see her, you know, reminiscent of, you know, the horse that also did everything like that. And she's trying to repress that, uh, to refrain from thinking about it. And, uh, what I like is that that also doesn't escape uh, Fedko's attention. He notices that yeah. it's not just the fact she's been, I wouldn't say demoted, but they've been reassigned to some shitty thing. But it's, you know, what she experienced that's troubling her. And, uh, <clears throat> and yeah, and then we actually move from that. And Sepiko uh, is thinking about Mosgus himself. And, uh, yeah, 
I also like that the first thing we get about Mosgus, the first hint is that he means trouble. That this assignment is not a normal thing. It's not before we even see him from Serpico himself. We get to know that Mosgus is going to be trouble. So I appreciate that. Yeah, the uh, this giant carry. It reminds me of a uh, you know what do they call the armored trucks that carry money around? This giant steel plated <laughs> thing. Yeah. Bar- barreling down this treacherous, you know, rocky landscape. Everyone has to get out of the way for this big-ass thing. Well, you can tell just by the fact it's armored that it's attacked. So that the guy, yeah. you know, that's riding in it uh, is hated. And actually that's confirmed by what the onlookers uh, describe. You know, they call him Brody Scriptus Mosgus, uh, who's, mm-hmm. you know, like condemned over uh, 500 people to death and uh, many more are killed, you know, by torture. So... You know, that hatred towards him is uh, very clear and it's confirmed by the fact at the end of the episode you see people preparing for an ambush. Yeah, we, we get an introduction to Mazgus before we even see him, of course, as you said, uh, associated with the deaths of five, 500 people or more and it, that he doesn't need corroborating evidence to take action on his Inquisition. And we see that again in Volume 18. Basically, one snitch is enough. Like, well, one guy said you're a heretic, so string him up, you know? Yeah. That kind of makes sense with the numbers. And I mean, that probably can be stretched to, you know, I think you're a heretic, <laughs> you know, because... Oh, not, totally. I don't yeah. like you, you're not giving me what I need, or otherwise not cooperating, so... Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're guilty. Or just the way they look. I mean, we get it, we, yeah. we don't need to hypothesize, we certainly see examples yeah. of this in the next two episodes, for sure. But yeah, um, immediately after this introduction, you know, these... Raider, raiders is the wrong word. They're really just like pissed off villagers, just to you know fall from the mountaintops to assault the, the caravan, specifically trying to take down Moscus. And what's interesting is, you know, uh, I guess we're already in the next episode, which is me. Yep. Kind of seamlessly transitions to that. I like how the guards get taken out like within a few pages because it advances the action to the torturers. You know, we're quickly introduced to the six torturers who take down these attackers ferociously and instantly in a matter of panels and they, they take them down in you know very horrifying ways you know using actual torture oh. implements yeah i just love the way the tables turn as the guy like opens the door and is demanding <laughs> you know get out you know and then yeah. you just see this you know large metal sharp object flying towards his face yeah this is pretty badass yeah, yeah, he also gets thrown backwards from the force of the thing, you know. And the guys get sawn in half, eyes get pulled out. What I like is that these, these guys are really just, like you mentioned, just out to, for revenge for their families who have been unjustly condemned. So it's like, yeah. you know, it's it's a never-ending circle where people get killed, other people try to avenge them, and they get killed again. Yep. The torturers are using these implements that are actually some of the more <laughs> um, notorious actual torture devices used uh, in the medieval times. Um, the breaking wheel. I don't know, actually I don't know the names of all of them, but they all do have just really crafty names. Just clever names to help people remember them. <laughs> I like how this panel, what Mazgus finally steps out after the ruckus is cleared down, saying, oh, it's such a noisy affair. We get this full-page shot of all six torturers and him. And the the contrast here, you know, the torturers for the most part have this you know black leather garb. It looks like leather anyway. And Mazgus himself is you know all dressed in white. You know, as if they're the uh, the gross ones, and he's totally pure and clean and, and totally normal compared to these freaks, right? I mean, <laughs> well, executioners did wear black uh, at the time, so I guess that's what it stands for. 
Of course, yeah. I, I guess I just mean look at how deformed they look compared to Mazgus, his yep. otherwise very, you know, uh, refined. You that, that close-up of him, and it's like, I mean, if you know, we know better, but it's like just seeing this, you know, for the first time, you'd have to assume that somehow these guys are apostles. Yeah, I mean that would be the that would be the guess. <laughs> yeah, just Mosgus does look like a freak. I, I don't know about the yeah, apostle, but inhuman. yeah, he does. He looks yeah inhuman. He looks just his features are just too strange, you know. Yeah, he prattles on for a while, uh, acting all enlightened in spite of all the chaos around him. Uh, what I was finding interesting throughout this whole episode, this exchange between Mosgus and as he's dealing justice out, is. Uh, both Serpico and Azan's reactions to Moscus are, they're not really in agreement with this guy and his methods. You know, you can see Azan kind of like, kind of holding himself back from, from saying something. Yeah. <laughs> and and Serpico as well, to a certain extent, is kind of puzzled by him. Whereas Farnese is instantly kind of taken with, I don't know what it is. I guess it's like his confidence or his assuredness about his duty to God. You know, that's something she's been struggling with the past volume. So it kind of makes sense that she'd fall in line when she sees someone that seems so confident about the path that he's on. <clears throat> in that sense, you know, it's not too dissimilar from what she sees in Guts eventually. Of course, Mazgus is, is a, a facade well, that he's really just ruling by fear. Yeah, I wouldn't say, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, Farnese is still skeptical of uh, Mazgus' ways. Like when you see the, you know, one of the attackers who Jose basically disagrees with Mogus and you know tells him how he's wrong because he just massacred people uh, you yeah. know unfairly and he gets angry and his face becomes like I don't know it's not even reversed but it becomes yeah, like what we know you know righteous indignation yeah. the physical presence of and it he act- he's just so contorted yeah and he actually like his eyes go sideways and he actually yeah. uh, brains a guy with a with a holy book you know it, you see mm-hmm. all their faces all of them are horrified and yeah, Farnese herself is, so... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we see her express skepticism later. I, I, I kind of see her kind of waxing and waning here, for, though, because... Yeah, I agree. <clears throat> she seems quite taken with him initially, and then, yeah, she eventually starts questioning it. What's sure is that she's impressed. Yeah, yeah very definitely sure. impressed, and uh, this is a guy who's got, uh, you know, power. He's uh, eminent among the Holy See, so it would make sense for her to defer to him in any case. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I think even then you can see that his methods are a bit, you know, like we've got a few shots of her with like no reaction towards what he's saying. He finally, when he, when he regains control of himself, he rebukes the crowd for trying to speak for God, these people trying to speak for God, when really only the Holy See can do that. Uh, my my favorite part of this episode, though, is when he kind of snaps his fingers like, you know, we're, we're in a hurry here. Uh, we need to pass, you know, summary judgment. On these people, so you're all heretics, and we're gonna commit them to the breaking wheel. Yeah. So then they wheel out the breaking wheel, and I love how the uh, the two the twin uh, torturers they carry out this little apparatus. Like you know, if you're on the road and you need to break someone's limbs off, like you just bring this along. You know, your portable breaking wheel apparatus. The well, the I mean, idea if you've already of this, got the wheel. <laughs> yeah, you, you already got the, the wheel. You, you, you need, need these little stand. wooden things. Yeah, these little wooden stands hold these people just right in place. Perfect. Get those legs elevated. Give them somewhere to go and break. <laughs> the, this particular scene is very striking. You know, very memorable scene for Berserk. We eventually see kind of the result of these types of people, the people that are chained or roped to the breaking wheel and stood out. 
But now we, we see, you know, how this all started with them. You know, what actually happens to these people? You know, the looks on the crowd's faces, the, the sound effects that are made here. The whole idea of the breaking wheel, to, to reduce someone to an object for, for ornamentation, it's all very disturbing. And uh, yeah. Farnese really enjoys it. <laughs> the looks on the crowd are yeah, very she, interesting as well. Yeah, she's entranced by the, the spectacle. Yeah, she gets a little hot, literally hot under the collar. Yeah, uh, Serpico. She got to and... you know help usher it in too. She had the oh, right yeah. answer. <laughs> yeah, very good answer. Break off the limbs. And Azan's reaction also is notable, saying it's atrocious. You can't even look at it. Yeah. And um, one of the guys tries to escape and gets ends up knocking into a long-haired woman who, of course, turns out to be Casca. Uh, uh, and this is also the moment that Luca runs into Casca. And we see kind of a, a slightly differently drawn Luca here. Um, tell tell Casca just to not get involved, and she helps her along. And that's pretty much the episode. They're on their way to Albion. Yeah, you should. I think you should mention uh, that it's a close call for Casca because the guy, like the guard, is yeah. about to, you know, take her in to also get uh, killed uh, by the will, you know, and like Lucas to say, no, no, no way, and such a thing, and you know, like she notices, we at least we get to see that, or the guard gets to see that Casca is not, you know, mentally quite there. Right. And yeah, for good measure, she like kicks the guy and <laughs> yeah. tells him to get lost, you know, to yeah l- remove any doubt. Yeah, so that's the kind of thing we see again in Volume 18 a couple times. They kind of have to act the part to kind of go along with the social norms to not stick out from the crowd. It's also interesting that Farnese notices Casca for a moment. You know, we don't know why or what it is that she senses, just that Farnese notices Casca for just a split second there on the page. Yep. Interesting, given their relationship in the future. Yeah, I think Mira put that in specifically for that purpose, because he knew he wanted to do something with them. Maybe he didn't know quite uh, what he would, but yeah, so... Or even as simply as Casca has a deep connection with Guts, and Farnese is, you know interested in Guts, and maybe that's all there is to it at the time. And so, yeah, she'll be aware of Casca when Guts arrives and is, yep. uh, yeah, looking for Or at least they would recognize them together. Right. Good point. That's volume 17, wrapped. We could have done that before, but we did it now. But we're moving on to volume 18. The Alrighty. best cover of all time. Oh my god, yeah, the volume, volume 18. that I thought was like, oh, this must be the end of the entire series, you know? <laughs> it's like, it's the final battle, basically, being depicted on the cover there. When I started reading Berserk, this, this was the newest volume, uh, 1999, and, you know, I, I had and you're, not... you're thinking, oh, I missed it. No, it was like, there were no summaries of volumes at the time. There was literally, there was just Black Sun Over Midland, and that's it, if you were Googling about Berserk. And so I didn't know how far the story had gone. I didn't really have any idea. And so I just had these covers to go on in terms of what had happened in the story. And so I saw this and I'm like, holy shit, this thing's wrapping up. Volume 18. Yeah, it's going to be in. Ironically, I think the cover to like content ratio couldn't be any more different as in like. Oh, yeah. Except for like these first two episodes we're about to cover. Guts barely like appears in this volume, relatively speaking. It might be like the least you see him anyway. This is definitely the biggest offender in terms of actual content to uh, what's on the cover. What is on the cover has no bearing on what's inside. Well, you know, that's why they put uh, a cover that was this attractive. Because, you know, you gotta get people to buy the volume. (laughs) 
Well, yeah, there's, I mean, Mira, just, he, he hit it out of the park with this cover. I can understand why he, you know, wouldn't hold it back. Look at this! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, all that, you know, disparaging comments aside, it is a rad cover. I mean, I fucking yeah. love it. Uh, I always have. And I would love to see a full version of it, because some of the text kind of overlays some of the elements. Actually, I compared them, and you can see a little bit more of the image in the Dark Horse version. So they had access to a larger print. Uh, from the Japanese version. It's not much. It's like a good three centimeters more at the top end of it. Um, but it's nice. a nice cover. This has always been a very peculiar volume in the series. And it's actually one that I was really not worried about, but concerned about how we do in a podcast. It's because it's, it's, it's just so different. Uh, I mean, first of all, there's not a lot of guts in this. You know, he's actually in four episodes. But compared to the rest of the series, that's that's a that's a big departure. But, yeah, he usually he's almost you know it's more it's usually the opposite you know where there yeah. might be four episodes he's not in, and that would be a lot. But it's not even just guts; it's also the fact that we're being introduced to a new territory, a new and an almost an entirely new cast of characters aside from the Holy Iron Chain Knights. Most of the cast of this entire volume are new characters, <laughs> so there's just a lot of ground to cover and. <laughs> Well, yeah, there's so there's, there's almost like a little uh, like a side story in this volume, mm-hmm. you know, that we sort of go on to sort of give us a deeper like look at you know what's going on you know uh, under the surface in yeah. this whole area. So it's it's a kind of a yeah a, a neat little departure. There's a lot of which yeah. I've come to appreciate more. I used to really be annoyed with it because <laughs> I want to see gut smash stuff. But <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a lot of things that are laid out in these volumes that comes to to play uh, in the, in the yeah. following ones, so, yeah. It definitely, it's laying a foundation for, uh, I guess, the real world, you know, underneath the one we see, or if you want to call it real or, or whatever, but it, yeah, it definitely bubbles to the surface, you know, we can kind of see, like, how humanity is in touch with that. But in this uh, particular episode, we start out with, uh, this is a pretty big milestone, we're introduced for the first time to Isidro, and... In perfect fashion, he is uh, being attacked by you know, some brigands. It seems like, or maybe he stole this food from him from them in the first place. But they're trying to either steal the food from him. That's his story, or uh, maybe take it back. And he's arguing that this is you know the first food he's had for days. And uh, he eventually offers it up. Isidro is pointing out his share. They start to feel you know kind of weird. They're not feeling well from what uh what he gave them. Isidro is doing what he can to survive in this world, you know, and it, and to get, a, and also not only that, to, to take down people that are bigger than him. And so I think I thought what's funny is about that is in that way, he's not much different from guts. who was always trying to take on big opponents, had to do different things to take down big opponents. Of course, Isidro's manner is far more conniving and more like a thief. So he has different ways of doing it. Yeah. I also like the look of these mercs, these mercenaries, if they can even be called that. More like scavengers, I guess, is a more appropriate word for them. Like, these are the guys who were left over after the famine, the plague, and the war took everything else and everyone else. These are the true survivors, these haggard-looking people. Yeah, what I like is how cunning he is, you know. I mean, how cunning is when he actually pretends to defy them, then he offers the food reluctantly, but he actually had poisoned it, like, in the first place, so... He expected that to happen, so I actually like, like we we're shown this character who appears to be, uh, how to say, not up to par, not able to cope with that world, but he's actually uh, smarter he's than better these guys. Than them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and uh, it's funny because he waits until you know, like you said, he actually puts up a fight just so they won't be suspicious, 
And then it's only when they're being affected by the poison that he whips out the bottle and uh, and shows them also the real stash <laughs> that he's yeah. got hidden under his coat. And so, well, like and how, he, once he actually has to attack this guy, he ends up using a sausage, and uh, <laughs> you see the guy kind of hit by it. And the next page, you see the guy munching on the sausage as he's like lying down on the ground. <laughs> this is a small touch. He's actually pretty badass too. Like I mean, for yeah. for what it's worth, that introduction is pretty cool. And he's also he's got his attitude already too, where he's basically telling them, you know, like don't call me a punk, you know, and yeah. <laughs> he's like he's paying them back, you know, almost immediately. So he already, you know, he thinks highly of himself, and in this case, he's uh, he's managed to get the best of them. But he points out that it's a non-lethal poison and that they'll live, and yeah. so uh, so he's pretty much triumphed and is going to leave. But then it seems more of uh, this gang show up, and so Isidro has to think on his feet. Which he's not good at, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he just starts, you know, crying and carrying on, you know, about a, a Kushit attack that he's completely made up. Meanwhile, one of the <laughs> the guys is trying to, you know, point out that it was him that did it, so Isidro kicks him in the head. Yeah. And while they're all trying to figure it out, he starts sneaking away and looks, you know, it's almost, he looks very much like uh, like a fox or something mm-hmm. trying, to, trying to get away. And, uh... And one of the guys turns and asks him, you know, if the Kushan army's here, how come we didn't hear any hooves? And that's when uh, they start to suspect him and get in his face. And so Isidra's going to distract them and is going to point and say, oh, uh, they're right over there. And of course, as he does that, they're actually hit by a, a Kushan weapon. And yeah. they're uh, which surrounded is, by the Pakiraka. Which is pretty fucking cool, you know? Like, Yeah, it's <laughs> an incredible, like, shot, the two-page spread. Because first we just see, you know, I mean, you might not know what they are immediately on the rooftops, but then the shot of them uh, below with just their eyes whited out mm-hmm. is pretty cool. I like their... um. The outfits here. I mean, this is our first look at the uh, Bakiraka's kind of mainstay units. I would say warriors, but I, I'm assuming everyone or most people in Bakiraka are trained. Yeah. What's interesting is, you know, they're not wearing any armor, or at least no visible armor. You know, they're very lightweight, very, you know, focused on killing quickly and efficiently and then getting out of sight. Yeah. You know, they're not here to fight a frontline war. They're assassins. They're all trained assassins. They all have like a uniform look, but they all have different weaponry. Implying, you know, diverse talents within the Bakiraka. And um, it's not as apparent in this episode, as more apparent next, how coordinated all their attacks are. And that's something we see moving forward as well, particularly with the Tapasa. As, you know, they all are able to coordinate, work work together to strike at once. And it's uh, within two pages, these guys all get taken down. I thought that was very cool, the way it all happened so quickly. Yep. And yeah, the guys identify them as uh, as being scouts, and of course, mm. uh, we see them starting to take all sorts of you know exotic looking, you know, strangely curved, you know, knives and other cutting weapons out from under those cloaks. And as you said, who knows what else is under there? But it looks like you can see like their their naked limbs, you know, arms, and even some of them their legs. So I mean, mm-hmm. it seems like yeah, what you said is right on. They're pretty much moving for comfort and probably just concealing weapons and you know, covering up. Uh, and for hiding in the shadows without being detected. And so, yeah, they have a pretty coordinated attack where you see them just land on them all at once, and they're stabbing, you know, right through the weak spots in the armor, either joints or through visors, and taking out their eyes, stabbing them in the mouths. One guy, of course, gets, you know, a ring in the face. (laughs) Chakram, yeah. Yeah. And one guy is pretty much hit from, you know, all angles, a heavily armored uh, soldier. And Isidro, in the meantime, is hiding behind a barrel and is crying for real now. And realizing that they've all been killed in the blink of an eye. And that's when a, 
one of the Malone uh, Pakiraka assassin approaches him and starts to pull his dagger on him. But then they all turn around because Guts appears on the scene in another pretty cool two-page spread where he is uh, completely covered by his cloak. I think this is a uh, this is almost like a um, like a western, you know? yeah. Particularly with the sound effects, yep. Mm-hmm. Kind of very very prevalently kind of um, what's the word the drone of them as he's walking <laughs> forward, not veering from his path, not trying to change his course because why should he? He's in a hurry, you know. <laughs> he's going to go through this town. Doesn't give a fuck what happens. Yeah. I really like that attitude. Wise guts, you know, and to take on the lead, you know, this has got to be, like, the, the intro to this episode has got to be one of my favorites in the whole series. Yeah. Actually, this episode specifically is one of my favorites as well. Like, we've got six pages with almost no text, just action. And, uh, yeah, I just love how Miras decompose the action. It's almost like a frame-by-frame manner where you get to see them super fast and agile, just, you know, in midair, jumping and basically about to kill them like they did the other guys, while he himself is swinging his sword. And if you notice the angle, it's almost like the, you know, the viewpoint is on the Dragon Slayer as he swings. Then we go mm-hmm. the opposite side, we're, you know, uh, below and behind them, as Gus has already slashed through. And, uh, and you know, like you get these two double pages in a row. And, you know, I think the, the point of this... Uh, because they are a bit redundant, but the point is to show how fast Guts is, you know, like how fast he swings. Where, you know, the motion is, you know, uh, decomposed in a way where you get to see it, you know, uh, how to say, as he finishes the swing, the guy spinning around, then, you know, cleanly halved, then we get the, uh, final page, you know, single page where you get to see him getting back up and the body is touching the floor and the remaining back here and Isidro are just aghast at what just happened. So that sequence, just those six pages, is pretty pretty fucking amazing in that regard because it shows these guys are a step above the normal guy but Gus himself is far above them. Yeah, you're right. And the, the, the leveling of that is interesting. And I mean, it's kind of <laughs> obvious, but the, the Bakiraka also clearly didn't expect him to be able to swing that so quickly. Because, you know, they think they have got the drop on him until he starts, until he draws, and then it's already over in a flash, all four of them. Yep. Well, I don't even think they swing. know what he's, what he's packing, really. You see them sort of, they just see him approach him, and they, like, they start whispering among themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's when, yeah, they just sort of charge him uh, sight and scene, practically. Mm-hmm. And, because, uh, yeah, I mean, usually they would, that would be the right move for them. You know, they have the advantage over most people. They're going to win. They should, there's, they have no reason to hesitate. Hesitation would be you know, would just get them into trouble. But in this case, yeah, they bite off more than they can chew. Yeah. I also like the reaction, because, you know, until now, these guys didn't have pupils. Yeah, uh, now they're wide-eyed. now they're like, holy shit. Now they're... It looks like the overhead shot of a Sidro. They're well. back to being humans. And meanwhile, yeah. meanwhile, Guts has kept his cool. You know, he cracks a joke. We see a nice full page of the DS where, you know, Guts comments on it. And, uh, it looks even bigger than usual. It looks even more like a slab. Yeah, because yeah. it's yeah, it's you know put forward to you know it's almost like a a show of strength. Uh, you know, and Isidro actually yeah. plays a role that's almost similar to Puck here, uh, Puck from back in Volume One, where he comments on the size of the sword and how badass Guts is, while Guts, who's ever the pragmatic, just tells the cushion to clear the way. Like you know, <laughs> actually <laughs> likes the side of him so very much. Where they attacked him, yeah. he kills them. And he just tells Who are you people? Yeah, he just tells the other to get lost. Like, he's not angry or arrogant or anything. He's just disinterested. He doesn't care. He just, you know, he's yeah. going through. It doesn't matter how or why he's going through. So, 
You know. Uh, well, I love the guy who attacks him from above, and he just looks annoyed as you yeah. see, like you know, his arm raising to punch him in the face. Yeah, exactly. Like if you look at his face, it really says it all. He's he's bored, annoyed. I don't know, but yeah, he's you know. And of course, tedious. The, yeah, and the, and the shot of uh, the Christian's face exploding is is pretty great as well. You know, it's very dynamic. You get that sense of perspective. It's pretty like it's funny because it's a shot of a face exploding. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so yeah. Meanwhile, you we get to see Puck get uh, acquainted with Isidro, and uh, you know, I, I like all the what says the Bacchus trick who seemed supernatural just an episode ago. Now they look just uh, like hopefully ineffective against Gus. You know, like they throw chakrams. He just parries with his iron arm and he slashes at them so fast. Even through a wall that they are quick dodging, can't even get them away fast enough and they just lose their feet, you know. So that sequence is also amazing for that reason because like they try to act, they're fast, they're quick, uh, they are very, you know, diverse in their attacks, but it doesn't matter. He just, he blocks. And yeah. if you look at his face again, he looks... You know, bored as he does it. He just blocks, he slashes, and, you know, they're done. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. Then the same for the scene uh, after that where they just keep, you know, you know, piling on crazy tactics, doing that kind of, uh, you know, two of them running, one jumps over the other. You know, they attack from both a high and low angle. But, you know, the reach of the DS is so, so I, yeah. long that he just crashes them in a single motion. I think that one's my favorite. Just yeah, the guy who's like up in midair and he sees the sword <laughs> and he just has this moment. It's like, just oh. it's the implied motion of the guy on top. The way he flips him too and yep, hits him in the head. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> one of the more memorable dynamics right there. Yeah, it's so... And, and so, you know, now we come to a head where all the remaining cushions surround him and they rush him all at once and we, we get like it's a mini cliffhanger at the end of the page. So, like, we are, oh, has he gotten through this, you know, uh, combined attack? Mm-hmm. And it's actually a move that's reminiscent of the one uh, Casca used against Adan in Doldre, where he uses EDS as a pole, and he, you know, dodges their attack. And then, you know, he butchers them in two swings. And I like how you got these four small panels of his glare at them, his feet on the ground. They turn yeah. around with sweat on their face, his clenched teeth, and then, blah, they're dead. Mm-hmm. So yeah, pretty. And you know, then he just he cleans the blood from the you know the DS like a samurai in a you know in a how to say Japanese flick, and then it's just just you know over. And yeah, that's just one. This episode, this scene is just like it's classic Black Souls man badass guts. That's as badass as you get. He doesn't even comment on them, really. He's just like he's he's admiring the work of the sword. He's like, "Wow, this was just like what a great <laughs> yeah. sword, yeah, nice, work. nice work, yeah. Yeah. yeah." Just you can't get cooler than that. And then you know yeah. he continues his trip, and actually that scene is also you know it's important mentioning. So you know Puck just has taken all the food from Isidro and is flying you know behind, <laughs> and meanwhile Isidro is so stricken by guts that that's when he you know decides to follow him and to. I don't know, become his apprentice or whatever you want, but that, that's the point where he decides to follow because he's just so badass. And so, mm-hmm. as Guts leaves and Isidro follows, the scene pans out and we get to see the, the tapas and silat. And so, you know, it's interesting because at that point, like, half the series has passed since we last saw silat in Volume 9, but he mm-hmm. still remembers to not underestimate Gus and, you know, he tells the tapas as much as they let him go. So, you know, I, I like that, you know, I mean, I can't tell because I hadn't started reading the series at the time, but I can't imagine what it must have been like for people who 
you know, we're reading episode to episode and so see that after, you know, nine volumes and we're like, dude, what the fuck? You yeah. Know? <laughs> Particularly surrounded, surrounded by these very mysterious, you know, large, crazy looking dudes. Yeah, and, t- and tied up with the Bakaraka as we knew them uh, in the sewers pursuit. So it just ties everything together pretty neatly. And right. uh, so, yeah, and we also get to... Would say to know that uh, you know Bakerka is looking. They are looking for a specific place as well. So you know uh, that was revealed through or an oracle. Something that will mm-hmm. come into play soon enough. And so the episode ends with uh, a double page spread of guts running as fast as he can towards uh, Saint Albion. And uh, actually, I found that page pretty striking. You know the what says the scenery, Gus face. You know, uh, you know mm-hmm. close up and just him faster, faster. You know trying to get there as fast as possible. And then that final shot of Casca, you know, know, standing in front of the tower and all the tents looking pretty vulnerable compared to that. This episode, the way it ends, more than most, I just love how seamless it is until it ties into the next one so seamlessly. Um, Just the the over, the massive kind of, what's the word, setting shot for Albion and his geography to down to the tower, it's the shadow of the tower itself in that next page. That's really like how he establishes that. And, and uh, yeah, I really like that cutaway shot of Guts as well, where you see the profile of his face kind of overlaid on the mountain range. It's very cool. Yep. One thing I wanted to say about Volume 18 in general, and it re- relates directly to this episode that I'm going to discuss here, is it is by far, I think it's by far the most graphic of the volumes, or the most explicit of the volumes, uh, between the orgy and the horrors and the, to- the torture chamber, you know, more than any other volume, it's pretty clear there is no leash around Mira's neck. He doesn't have to sa- ask his boss, like, hey, boss, I'm going to have an orgy in this volume. <laughs> you know, it's going to have everything you can imagine, along with cannibalism and drug-induced hysteria. Oh, and there's also going to be some medieval human torture. and uh, Yeah, is it, and they're eating babies, too. Exactly. Oh. That's the cannibalism part. And also, by the way, my main character is going to be in there less than half the volume. <laughs> you know, it's just this really a kind of out there volume. Yeah, for it's, it, I think it also shows how ballsy Mira can be, you know. Oh, sure. Where he's like, like, I mean, in the first place, you know, to think we've heard these past few years people complain about, uh, how to say, filler, you know, saying, uh, you know, these episodes or whatever are filler because the story doesn't progress, whatever. Can you imagine what these guys would think? He's actually stopped and, you know, took the time to think about this volume where you actually mm-hmm. get to see you know uh, whole episodes that are just setting up what life in the camp is like you know the prostitutes that kind of stuff like you guys mentioned earlier we don't get to see Gus at all for whole episodes on it not just Gus you don't get to see Griffiths you don't get to see nothing you know it's just you know uh, minor characters we get to see Casca doing you know this and that we see exposition and stuff so yeah, I find it very, very ballsy and also very good, very effective because it makes the following volumes all the more powerful. Absolutely. I mean, this whole volume is scene setting for what's going to happen in, you know, Albion. Yeah. And- I think that the whole point of this entire section, particularly this is in the next episode, is, is showing the cauldron that's been cooking in Albion, you know, between the mountains of, you know, corpses, Mazgus's, you know, farce and farcical inquisitions creating. And the heretics, you know, these things are primed for explosion. And Guts, his head is straight into the center of it, and Casca's already yeah. there. And it's very atmospheric, too. Like, uh, you know, there's a lot of episodes, or a lot of scenes in these volumes that look like they're straight up from a, a horror story. And not even just a horror, but, like, I think he has a lot of different, like, the, the ways he portrays a lot of these things. Almost like a documentary. You know, there's these scenes where you see the refugee camp, 
where they're actually breaking the fourth wall. The characters are looking, you know, at the at the screen, almost like you would if you had like you know pictures taken of a refugee camp in, in modern times. Yep, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I agree. Anyway, the setting of All Beyond. There was an interview with Miura in 2000. It was recently translated and posted on our forum uh, where Miura referenced this in particular. He said uh, the refugee camp had a basis in reality. It was uh, the result of the Rwandan genocide uh, between the Hutus and the Tutsis. Uh, Miura said that he used the refugees to show all thing, all sorts of things like how xenophobic groups can be, how people will refuse to act for themselves and just wait for someone else to do things for them. He says the idea was to expand upon the bad aspects of groups in the present day. Yeah. Of course, that's just, you know, one aspect of what makes Albion such a cauldron. You know, there's also the heretics and the Holy See, which are these two forces that the God Hand have been, you know, fanning the flames of for years, and it's all set to explode yeah. in Albion. But I think the commentary you mentioned is quite clear in many scenes, where you see how people will quickly turn on, you know, on something or someone, depending on the situation, will be quick to jeer or, you know, make fun of people who die. But at the mm-hmm. same time, they'll take revenge when they aren't seen. There's a lot of that in uh, in that whole uh, section of the story, actually. Absolutely. So that's all kind of scene setting for what happens in this. We kind of pan through the refugee camps to get an idea of what life is like here. You know, they're fighting for just, you know, rats. Uh, I like how closely... You know, young boys are fighting over a rat, and then in the background, you know, a carriage of the dead is being piled up and wheeled behind them. It's the proximity of death is very close. Yep. And uh, as the Holy Iron Chain Knights are arriving on the outside of the temple, uh, you know, people are, you know, coming up to them trying to take food from the carriage, which is offerings for uh, the temple. And the Holy Iron Chain Knights round everybody up. Uh, They said that they're basically running out of food. Farnese tries to rebuke them, but, you know, the stomach is more powerful than the Bible at this point. Moscus intervenes and saying says that he will show mercy on them for being so bold. Of course, he has his own mind uh, for what, bo- uh, for what you know, mercy means. So uh, this woman stands up with her child uh, that is too weak to nurse, and he takes them into the temple, and we get this lovely, more setting shots of life around Albion as... Uh, people in the temple drop out food, and people, you know, are down there waiting for it to come. The scraps yeah, of food, and scraps, they you know. chew on the bones. Yeah, and Farnese sees these things, and she also sees the remains of uh, torches, or you know, what stakes. do you call them? Human. Yeah, there are also stakes, yeah. you know, where people were burned. You know, right. cages uh, where people are being eaten by crows. Mm-hmm. Nice stuff. I'll, meanwhile, Mazgas still has a big smile on his face. You know, just uh, everything's going smoothly. <laughs> Um, the he promises that the child will be nourished. Uh, we'll see about that later on. And he says the mother now must uh, you know engage in her faithful service. So she's basically he's he's traded the boy's life for hers. Yeah, I like how he as, puts uh, his hand on the shoulders and he's all fatherly and all that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then we get that shot of the big you know door and the big mouth. Yeah, the imagery here is all very startling. You know, he Mira uses different brush strokes for this stuff, uh, you know, giving us texture, just kind of like horrifying texture to everything. Uh, on this two-page spread where all sorts of tortures are happening. Again, all these have a basis in reality. Um, if you can you want to look them up, you can to find out more about them. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's pretty horrified by it. What's interesting is Mazgus, you know, I feel like people have said that you know Initially, I've seen people say, like, oh, he's 
definitely apostle because of the way he's, you know, engaging in human torture like this, but he actually seems to think he actually is helping these people. You know, he's very convinced of this. He's very earnestly on this path. And you can see that in his reaction to uh, <laughs> when he puts this woman up to the, the burning coals thing. He's, he's, I so wish you to overcome this trial. He's like crying and his eyes are huge, mouths wide open. Yeah, I also like how he... You know, as Farnese is disgusted and, you know, I would say turns her face when she sees a woman's uh, breast being squished mm-hmm. to, you know, to blood. He, you know, like that look on his face where he tells her to look. Yeah, uh, yeah it's a look of insanity. So, you know, actually, yeah. it's, it's funny because in a way you can tell he's not an apostle because apostles will relish fear and uh, pain mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. But he's... He like his form of insanity is not the same. It's not the same kind of madness. I don't know if I'm clear, but at least that's how it yeah, feels. Yeah, well, to me. you know, if he was an apostle, he would be treating it like a joke. You know, he would be sort of mm-hmm. mocking the whole situation. Whereas, you know, he's just sort of this perfect ideal of a zealot. Yeah, you know, it's like it's a, just yeah. a different kind of monster. Yeah, he's just fervent. Yeah. I mean, he shows the excesses of the church, basically. You know, if you take the scripture, you know, so seriously that your face is carved from stone, this is the kind of stuff that you do to people. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, he hooks this woman out to where she's going to have her feet burned with coals. And he, <laughs> the face of him crying is just, you know. Yeah, I love it. It's your eyes. Or just also when he's got his arms out, you know, and he's sort of preaching, you know, about not having fear. And you could just see his face and, you know, in just his teeth and his eyes and blackness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Down at the bottom. He does look like a monster. Mira, I think Mira really tries to make him look like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Farnese is, uh, once again, kind of, uh, looks a little nervous, but also engaged in what's I happening. I think, yeah, I know. think, you know, it's a, it's a kind of, the way I would put it is entranced, where she's disgusted, yeah. but at the same time fascinated, you know, like, uh, pe- yeah. people who see, uh, roadkill will, slow down to look at it even though it's horrifying they just you know can't help but look i think that's uh how she she is at at that point yeah Yeah. she's sort of staring fascinated into uh the darkness here and seeing what looks back and the next page we transition uh to the next episode where we start with a nice uh (laughs) a nice nasty decomposing body that's been uh, crucified on a tree with crows eating the eyes out and you know it's just, so it's, it's just, actually the flesh has been removed so it's the it's the priest from earlier we earlier saw the flayed flesh uh, hanging on the tree and here's a body without flesh so i'm assuming it's the same one and then uh farnese is now you know really active in sort of helping mosgus round up these heretics and bring them yeah. along including this guy you know screaming that he didn't kill any priest and she is uh basically telling him to quiet down and they will investigate and he points out that nobody's come back yet, you know, from, yeah. from the investigations. <laughs> he knows what's up. He's going to die. Yeah. Everyone knows what's up. <laughs> Everyone knows except for Farnese. Yeah, apparently. who's denying it and saying, like, yeah. if you're proven innocent, you will immediately. And uh, there's a woman uh, looking for alms and looks to be carrying a child that is already so dead. So is this the same uh, child from before? Cause it looks yeah, like... of course. It's... It, it's the same child as the same woman. You can and tell her hands and feet are burned. Yeah, she's got bandages around uh, around her hands, and yeah, you can tell the boy who what, you know she was told he would get get back, you know, how they get better. Mm. But yeah, he clearly didn't, and that's why Farnese is just like you can see she's yeah. Yeah. stricken by the scene. She like she knows that it was just bullshit. 
And yeah. she knows that nothing <laughs> she her, their presence there is not helping anyone, you yeah. know. That Mazgus's intervention did jack shit. Yeah. Here, you know. Well, except yeah. uh giving the pleasure of torturing a woman. Yeah, great. And the kid ended up dying, which is tough maybe to see. maybe because of that, because I mean she pretty much was marked and obviously less capable in that situation and probably half what? mad. Yeah, and I think it's also yeah, you can tell she's like at this point she's driven mad. But the thing is also when the boy didn't get food Anyway, like, I mean, just, you know, feeding him once is one thing, and giving him medicine once is a thing, but without more, like, it's not enough. Right. And, uh, meanwhile, our friend the heretic is, uh... Hey, hey! Screaming uh, at the crowd that he's... Gonna... Innocent until proven guilty. Come on. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I mean, <laughs> and in Farnese, she's just a little more... She's not as, uh forthright in her duties now she's just sort of pushing along yeah. uh, through this scene uh, what I like in, in this shot is you know that look of the crowd where you see the eyes oh yeah for sure. only the, the eyes the fear and the hate yeah and they just you know and that's yeah that's so you know it's very telling and uh, again it's what we were saying earlier about you know being a commentary on how this situation really play out even to this day I think that shot yeah. is very telling. Like these people's eyes looking at the guy and just, you know. Well, it's, it's a it's a recurring theme of this entire. We see that shot multiple yep. times in this volume and throughout. And, you know, we ultimately see it erupt on the outside as, you know, supernatural forces take over, kind of fueled by this fear that's being, that's driven these people. Interesting. Yeah. Adding an extra layer to this is uh, we see uh, Luca and she's pointing out that the guy was basically... Uh, a bully that used to, you know, like uh, push people around, yep. and so that it's not so bad that he's being taken away, and that's probably, you know, yeah, someone did betray him to accuse him of this and get rid of him. And then we, of course, see that she is on the job, and we're introduced <laughs> to Jerome, <laughs> who is with her, and he's, you know, <laughs> he's he's uh, not really interested in the little civics lesson about the area at the yeah. moment. I like the interplay here between them. It's really great. I mean, this is, you know, it kind of endears you to both characters, I think. Yeah. Uh, just their personalities. You know, Jerome is part of the whole Iron Chain Knights, but he's already discrediting them and kind of talking down about them. But in a, in a playful way, he, he kind of, I don't know, he kind of grew on me really quickly. Well, yeah, in this she's, scene. she's kind of teasing him about, you know, being there at all, you know, while, you know, the other soldiers are at work. And he kind of points out, well, not really. And then he uh, yeah. gives his opinion of Farnese as a, a leader and. How she's always got, you know, <laughs> that none, nobody really likes her, that everything she talks about is duty, faith, and crazy orders, and that, you know, she's not much of a, she doesn't have much talent for command, and that, you know, if she's supposed to be ornamental, it would be nicer if she acted that way. But It's a ref refreshing frankness after hearing yeah. from Mazgus for so many episodes. Yeah, I think that's why uh, you like him, Walter, is because... In a way, he's very similar to Cacus in that he's the, ev he's yeah. the every man, you know, he's a, the man's man, the worker, the, the, you know, average guy who just. Telling it like yeah, it is. Joe the plumber. He just wants to, <laughs> to go whoring and, uh, and you know, that's about it, you know, yeah, I mean. Yeah. Love that shot of Luca as well with her uh, heads over her hands like that and her hair draping. It was very beautiful. Yeah. But of course, everything but is spoiled again when, uh, when Casca pops <laughs> her head in. <laughs> I like how they both scream because yeah. he's screaming and then she's screaming because he's screaming that's great <laughs> also we see that she's bandaged and you know we ultimately learn that that's because of it's a it's a repellent for everybody else basically yeah she's so okay, she looks you know. like she's got leprosy or something yeah, and uh so uh yeah at that point jerome is pretty much done <laughs> and uh luca tries to apologize also you know tells casca she wasn't to, to come in here and uh 
So yeah, Luca feels bad and offers to give him a free one next time, but he pays her and he also gives her a, a necklace too and some little promise of, you know, taking her home when the when they're done there and he's going to be the head of his family apparently. So he can't marry her, but she could be, you know, his mistress living in the lap of luxury. And, uh, you know, she's... This came, this came back into play just recently where Luca had referenced that about, you know, why Jerome wasn't around uh, in current times, you know, and that didn't quite work out. Where he, he was good to his word, but Luca wasn't interested in that kind of life. So, well, that yeah. was interesting. And, you know, she uh, she kind of points to it here, you know. she she's actually handles it very well where she just says, oh, you know, I won't hold my breath. She doesn't, yeah. like, put any pressure on him or anything like that. And, but, it, but that's just for her own benefit because she... She, in the very next panel after doing you know a nice friendly wave goodbye is like yeah right you know I can't take this stuff seriously in my line of work and uh, I think that is that's pretty much the most he could do for her though in his position if he wanted yeah. to maintain his family's lineage you know he kind of had to do that and so I mean it's a it's a big deal what he's offering her but it, again it doesn't quite work out yep yeah and of course all the other girls heard uh, what he said and of course they're very excited and pointing out how they would love to hear something like that even just from a merchant you know let alone a noble mm-hmm. and uh, she splits up the uh, the payment between them and we learned that the bag that Jerome handed her wasn't m- money but actually it was like rice yeah uh, that distributes yeah. among them well and it's interesting because I mean she first they're you know they don't want her to she breaks the necklace too. Yeah. That uh, that he gave her, that he put, she put it on in front of him, but she takes it off and she breaks it apart, and you know they're going to split everything evenly, and what's more, they're also going to split everything uh, they make with their neighbors, because as she's pointing out, you know, in their line of work, especially, you know, if they get on someone's bad side, or if you know they catch some zealot, you know, they can be sold up the river as a witch or a heretic pretty quickly. Yeah, so it's actually very smart what she's proposing, basically to sort of you know she's being very political here, and in a very good practical. Way. And yeah, yeah, I, I found this very interesting. Like her, it's her survival skills. It's she's not being altruistic. She's she's not doing nice things. She's doing it in order to survive. Yeah, and also she's also doing she's nice. it. She, there's even a hint of you know keeping all of them happy too. Like you know, she's, oh yeah, she's trying, she's giving them the pep talk like, hey, you know. Don't turn, you know. Don't one of you turn on the rest of us and screw us all over? Because I know it's a possibility, just the way the world is. Yeah, it's this sort which of which is very, what happens. Yeah. yeah, this very pragmatic and depressing sort of worldview where she's talking about how shallow and petty and jealous everyone is, and that's why uh, she's going to these lengths to sort of try to maintain the status quo. And the one exception is, uh, for at least for now, is Casca, who she's mm-hmm. not, you know, forcing to work or you know, sort of pull her share just because. Uh, you know, she can tell that she's got some sort of disability for sure. And uh, also she thinks there's something special about her and her brand. So but, and yeah, on, she's basically for, trying to protect her too because she feels she's helpless. You know, we've already seen kind of the common folk around Albion, but Luca and her girls are special or different. And I think what's notable is that, you know, Luca helps kind of protect these girls through this methodology, this philosophy they have of sharing and, you know, not trying to hoard for themselves, but they're kind of untouched by some of the other negative elements we've seen in the other people. Right. Well, it's become a safe harbor for them. Yeah. Well, then, uh, not to burst your bubble, but we see the next customer who does not look like Jerome. <laughs> Correct. Like, so there's the there's the downside yeah. right there. But yeah, at least they're not being but, taken away to be tortured. But I mean, they're they're very you know all these girls are they're happy if not carefree you know despite all the things around them you know. 
yeah, they're able to joke about, you know, it's almost, it's semi-normal. Yeah, you know, yeah or They're able exactly. to joke about, you know, their line of work and about, you know, the people they meet and how they'd love to, you know, hear those kinds of sweet nothings, I think, as Luca mm -hmm. described them. I think what you can say is that they get by, you know, while all those are truly surviving, yeah. they're pretty, pretty, doing pretty well, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, then we're introduced to Nina, Nina who's a who's interesting character. Polarizing character. I've seen, I've seen people, some people really really like Nina. I think it's hard to like her. Yeah, uh, it is a... hard to like her because she's you know she's weak. I mean she's physically weak. She's mentally weak. She's kind of emotionally. Weak. But I think she she's an important representation of like sort of the difficulty in surviving here for like a normal, not so capable person. Like if you're not someone like sure. Luca or Isidro or Guts, where in their own ways they all have like sort of excellent coping mechanisms for a world like this. Yeah. Or special mm -hmm. skills or talents. She's just sort of, you know, she's an average person that, you know, would normally be crushed in this kind of world if she wasn't under Luca's protection. And we see even that's not really enough for her. Yeah. And we start yeah. with Luca giving her some medicine because uh, she's sick. And, I mean, we know she's coughing up blood. But I don't know if we're going to see that in this episode. But she's got clearly got something like maybe tuberculosis. It's probably syphilis. Yeah, I think she's got syphilis, yeah. Something, she's got something nasty that's, uh... Anyway, she's uh, she's taking Casca, uh, or as they're calling her, Elaine, yeah. for a little walk here. And uh, as they're passing by, they can see some of the crowd, you know, throwing rocks at a heretic that's been, uh, you know, chained up. And everyone is, uh, <laughs> I like, don't don't ask, just throw quickly, uh, someone is saying. And so they're all throwing rocks, and as uh, Nina tries to pass by looking disgusted, we get another one of those shots of, you know, mm -hmm. the the fearful crowd, you know, looking at her and seeing, you know, well, why isn't she throwing? And so she picks up a rock and sort of yeah. makes this, she closes her eyes and makes this half-hearted toss just to fit in. It's, a, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, we saw Luca do something similar to this in volume 17, yeah. just, you know, really recently. They're, you know, forced to go along with the cruel status quo because they don't want to stand out from this, you know, horde of people because they know one word and you're a heretic, you know? Yeah. And so then we get to meet this uh, neat sort of character that's, uh, he, he seems almost like a guy you'd imagine standing on a corner with a, the end is nigh, you know, sandwich board on. He's got, you know, this oh, dead yeah. crow that he's rigged up on a, on a staff and he's, you know, raving about the hawk and the goddess of flame who uh, will become familiar to us at this one point. And he's talking about, yeah, the the end of times and the hawk coming to save everyone. And there's some people, you know, yelling at him to shut up and that, you know, he's going to get them all taken away for being heretics. What he says actually is, like, really impressed me. The fact that he says, after the falcon repels the barbarians, it shall lead us to become one nation. Like, oh, yeah. whoa. Like, <laughs> whoa. Like, Falconia? Holy he crap. The story. He just summarized it in a sentence. This is, this is ten years out from Falconia even being a yeah. name. Yeah, you know? <clears throat> it's... It's pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. And it's interesting that it's a revelation that was given to him from yeah, the goddess of flame, which we learn is uh in Slan. So Yeah. You you can tell that you know, I, I like how it's done where you know, people who listen will actually get to know you know, the secrets of the world like that, you know, so this crazy guy gets to know something that's that this big, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big deal. yeah, it's, it sounds like, who would take this guy seriously? I'm not even sure I noticed that line until this reread, because I wasn't really paying much attention to this guy's ravings. But it, it is very explicitly talking about what eventually Falconia becomes. Yep. Anyway, yeah. 
And so they make their way. They continue on until they get to the riverbank. And Nino starts getting some water and washing herself. And she's noting that, yeah, she's uh, she's bleeding. From and, a crotch. Yeah, and she's having... Uh, yeah, it's getting worse. And it's, there's pus in there. And she's, uh, she's not having a good time. And she's considering that she might be dying. And... Uh, and that basically she might go mad as well. So it does, yeah, it does definitely sound uh, like syphilis, you know, that she's got a disease of bad blood. And I think that does kind of, it kind of frames her perspective on the rest of it. You know, she feels like she's dying, so she's more capable of doing these very rash things because she yeah. thinks she's done for Well, anyway. she's also, I think she's, because of that, and, you know, this is a big thing for her at the end of this episode, a preoccupation with fear. You know, she notes yeah, that totally. Casca doesn't seem to be afraid of anything seems kind of oblivious and you know she's while she's noting you know sort of poetically that they're standing in the shadow of uh this tower that's supposed to represent you know god that everything feels grave and terrible and as she's talking about this we see this you know body a little bit away under a log you know and it just you know it looks horrible and there's, there's a droning and she's just talking about how she's pretty much scared of everything of living of dying and, you know, that she just can't stand living in this world. And, of course, at the end of that, we see uh, Casca look up and she's looking over towards where that body is. And we see uh, the brand come and we see we see them start to pop up over the log, yeah. which is, you know, not natural. You know, I literally like the shot of the sun going behind the tower, you know, implying that now they're in the shadow of the tower. Yeah. And now yeah. the inspectors can gather, and you know. One, yeah. one thing that's uh, very, uh, that I find very interesting is that we'll get to talk about more uh, in uh, later episodes is how similar uh, Nina is to Farnese, actually, in the way that oh, she's yeah. so scared of everything. And, you know, what's interesting is, the way the two characters eventually end up. So this is something we'll have the okay, opportunity to talk about later. But in this scene, especially, it's uh, it's very clear to me that you know th- there's very strong parallels between the two characters. Mm-hmm. It's a small thing, but I really like this shot of Casca looking over blankly to the right side of the panel, and there's that growing darkness in the yeah. panel. It can you know it's basically yeah. expressing her sensing something yeah you know and ultimately we see the brand bleeding I just like that very you know visual cue for her sensation I thought that was yeah really it's neat. very nice anyway uh, I think this is the first time we see her actually you know since uh, she was in the basement when uh, that sort of pig like apostle attacked them yeah yep. sure this is the first time we've seen how she sort of copes with sensing uh, sensing things on her brand you know she's just sort of looking wide eyed yep we didn't talk about Nina's hair. It looks like a bunch of like cotton candy. It looks like cauliflower. <laughs> I like her hair. Puffball. I like her hair, and I think she's cute. Okay. So yeah, as the next episode uh, picks up with uh, you know, uh, I think it opens very atmospherically with Casca noticing the evil spirits. You know, I mean the continuation of that while uh, Nina is still washing off her dress, uh, oblivious to everything. What I like about this opening page is the frame framing of it. I find it interesting with the four, you know, slices that shows things from different distances, you know, ending with uh, the undead hand on the, you know, forefront and the tower in the distance. Uh, and like I mentioned earlier, I think that's one of these episodes that feel like it's straight out of an horror story. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we get to see, uh, you know, in the next pages, the undead progressing towards their prey as they lament their condition. One thing I like is how even, like, even though this is 
just very small stuff. It's minor dialogue from undead people, and you know, like the average reader might not really care about it. But Mura manages. He uses that to flesh out the environment. Uh, for example, to show here that the refugees, uh, you know, presumably died like dogs despite their face and they resent that, you know, like they prayed and everything, but they still died, uh, shittily. Uh, and we then cut to the Beherit Apostle's viewpoint, which is interesting because he's observing the scene. And, uh, I think that's a recurrent theme from him, this, uh, observer. So he's looking and then he's shocked because the demon child appears. He intervenes to protect his mother, as he's known to do. Uh, so yeah, he's taken aback by that. The boy follows his usual modus operandi. He forces the specters to retreat before disappearing himself, uh, so that his mom can't get to him. So Casca remains agitated by that, but Nina drags her back to the camp uh, as the apostle keeps watching. Real quick, two things. One is, <clears throat> it's actually the second time that we've seen this mysterious uh, observer. Yep. I forgot, I failed to mention it the first time, which was, uh, the, I think it was Shadow of the Tower 1. Either way, uh, it's back here, and yeah, it's surprised to see uh, a, a creature that it can't quite identify. You know, we, we we know from later on in Volume 20 what the deal was with the Behirid Apostle and its observation, is trying to understand these people whose lives are so terrible. Um Another thing I thought was really interesting is the way that the um, that the demon child dispels this. You know, we see the it basically separates the specters from the bodies, yeah. and we see that again in, in later on in this volume. Almost the exact same thing happened, and it really reminded me of. It's different, but it reminded me of what happens in volume twenty eight when the uh, crocodiles uh, or the alligators, I can't yeah. remember, <laughs> attack. Uh, the boy just kind of like gives it a yeah. look, and the thing just turns back around, and you know. It shows its ability to manipulate, you know, spiritual, spiritually affected things. Just with a look. <clears throat> yep, yep. That's so, uh, yeah, then we cut to a uh, shot of the tower. And, uh, you know, it's a very ominous... Sh- Love yeah, that it's, shot. It's wow. just so ominous, uh, you know. His eyes over the tower of Albion, you know, like that's hinting that he's really the one dominating the place. He's the one that who's really... Like the master of the things, you know, like we, we, we saw Mosgus, everything, but this guy, this creature, whatever it is, whoever it is, is, uh, the one it's all about. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I like that. Then we. I do, I even remember seeing this for the very first time before the newer episodes were out and thinking, who in the fuck is this? Yeah, we, all, you know, we were, as and I were talking about it, we were saying, it looks like, you know, if you just saw this, you would think, like, well, here's the real bad guy of the story. Yeah. Here's the real <laughs> villain in Berserk. The final yeah. boss. Very ominous. So we cut to Farnese not having an appetite, and uh, she's still thinking about that woman with the, the dead boy and all those people, and you can tell it's taking a toll on her. She can't eat. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, uh, we see her men complaining <laughs> about her, including Jerome, and they're just complaining yeah. about the screaming uh, from the people who are getting tortured about their job because like why should they help Mosgus they should just guard him but she has to help him so they just you know uh, complain about her it's also it's it's almost a comical scene because the groaning you see is the sound effects happen kind of in the background or the, <laughs> yeah. the periphery it's it's almost like it's like it's become a practical annoyance they're, yeah like they're they can't get through their dinner. food you know yeah yeah it was kind of a pretty much scene. and so they they speak ill of her but she's actually within earshots so she can uh, yeah. hear what she, what they say and uh, Sarpico uh, breaks it up by 
pretending to be clumsy and drop food on the table, but uh, it's made. Cl- I mean, it's clear that he did it on purpose. So they, they just yeah. complain about him as well and just say that he's just uh, sucking up to her and that's all he got his post. But yeah, we can tell uh, it's not the case. I mean, it's a bit more complicated than that. <laughs> He's such a good actor. Yeah. He can do all this. Well, it's just, you know, it's his usual uh, way to do things where he'll just mm-hmm. go through the path of least resistance, even though it makes him yeah. look like an idiot. It doesn't matter as long as he gets the results done. Yeah, I think that yeah. suits him just fine, too, that, you know, people underestimate him. Yeah, indeed. Yep. That's Absolutely. right where he wants them. Yep. Yeah. And, um,. So yeah, they also comment on how the refugees are getting more and more numerous and it feels like they are even besieging the place. So, you know, they are very ill at ease. Well, that was a cool idea. Like, they are sensing the danger that this place presents, but they can't quite explain yeah. it or, or realize yeah. that it's it's a powder keg about to blow. They don't realize it. They just kind of pass it off. Like, they're sensing yeah, something. Yeah, but they know it's uh, something wrong. So then we cut yeah. to Farnese and Serpico going down the stairs and uh, they come across... Uh, a striking scene where the torturers are, you know, feeding crows, playing with them in light, and they've taken off their masks. And uh, you can see that they are deformed, you know, uh, their faces are just, you know, misshaped. But uh, at mm-hmm. the same time, when they're playing with the crows, they look like nice guys, actually. They look, you know, happy and... Uh, it's almost like childlike. Yeah, 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 almost like, yeah, like you said, childlike and very sympathetic. And so... The guy wearing the you know uh, bird mask comes up to her, to them rather, and uh, well you know he takes them to Moses. Mm-hmm. They get to talk about uh, the torture, their appearance, you know whether they were surprised, and he explained to them uh, how you know they came to be, you know that they were uh, pursued by villagers because of their appearance. Uh, he shows them his face, and we actually get to see that, contrary to the others, he's got very fair looks, but uh, that light uh, gives him blisters. He's allergic to sunlight or something. So that's why he has to wear this, uh, you know, this clothes. And he explains, uh, we, we get to see a little flashback where Moscus was kind to them, and uh, that's how they got to serve him so faithfully, because he took them in and was nice to them and made them into his apprentices, I guess. Yeah, so. it's, it's, like the, the similarities here between you know really, uh, the, the, what came to mind for me was similarities between Mosgus's relationship with these outcasts and and Griffith with the apostles in terms of how they are now in Falconia. He gave them a purpose and he united them who would otherwise be you know reprehensible to humans. He gave them a, a reason to exist. What's the difference? Well, the other is, thing uh, that's uh, What's well, interesting to me in these flashes of them is that you can clearly see, you know, he raised them too. Like they're yeah, children sure, from, in, the, in these shots. Yeah. The difference between uh, Mosgus and these guys and Griffiths and Apostles though, is that Apostles were always predators. I mean, these guys were uh, hunted down by people, rejected, and would have died uh, pretty shittily without Mosgus' intervention, whereas Apostles were already monsters preying on people. So I think it's a bit different in that, uh, in that regard. And it, sure. I just kind of felt, I felt an echo there. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I can see it. I just wanted to specify that it's a bit like the, the mechanics to me are a bit different, but uh, I see the parallel, definitely. I love the cute little flashback of the, the boy that ultimately wears the plague mask of the bird. You know, he has a little different mask when he's younger. I thought that was a nice touch. It's just a small thing to show how he, he was younger. Yeah, and seeing they old and everything. 
Yeah. So yeah, he keeps telling, explaining to them that uh, he was hated and feared. So he he doesn't enjoy hurting people, and you know, how to say, he still has his pride. I, I it's hard to explain his position, but he's torn between his job and uh, what he feels towards these guys. So. Well, it's actually something that's directly addressed in the next episode because Farnese is feeling these same things, and we get Mazgus's answer on this. When when you feel one yep. way, but you're driven to compelled by the scripture to act in another. Yep. And um, what's interesting, you know, it's actually I think it's very unfortunate that this particular one uh, guy doesn't have a name because I feel like you know they get they end up getting named kind of derogatorily based on their their traits. Like, oh, it's the tall one. Oh, it's the deformed twins. You know, if, I think that if they had names, would he be able to humanize? He would humanize the characters a little bit, particularly this guy who feels like he's the most fleshed out of Mazda's yeah. crew. I don't know. I, I, yeah. I kind of wish he had definitely. A name. But in in a way, I think the fact he's not named is also deliberate because it's yeah, it keeps him as some kind of anonymous. You know, in the end, despite all everything he says, he still helps torture and kill people, and he doesn't show. Like I mean, yeah. he seems to show a bit of remorse here. But at the same time, not so much. So that's the extent of it. Yeah. Though. Well, I like, also think. I mean, page, you know? I I have sympathy for them not having names in a way because it's like uh, they're just tools. You yeah. know, they have sure. they don't have any they don't have enough identity of their own to have a name, or they don't get to. Like this guy obviously has some some pathos, you know, going on, and you know there could be more to him, but he's just sort of you know he is his duty ultimately. Yeah. Like that's all he has <laughs> in life. It's not much of a life. Yeah, you know, I mean, Mazga saved him from maybe dying and, you know, the, like in that tree stump, but all he's given him is he's made him this instrument of, you know, torture. Yeah. So, you know, they go up the stairs and uh, they hear a noise and find this surprised and uh, the guy replies that it's the sound of worship, the sound of Mazga's worshipping. And they come into uh, a hall where Mazga's is... Uh, doing, you know, this uh, very specific way of uh, saluting in a Christian face, which is to drop on your face uh, with your arms spread. So he does that, dropping on the ground, uh, and that's how the episode ends. It's called prostration. Indeed. I really love this this uh, this chamber that Moscus is in. I think it most resembles the Pantheon. I couldn't find any other structures that were most similar, but this this that seemed the yeah, most similar. The, the dome is similar, yeah. It looks like it. Mm-hmm. I agree. We also get to see those uh, little symbols with, uh, like the mm-hmm. says, the orbs with wings, which uh, we actually get to see again in Falconia. So that's a nice little touch. Yeah, this was a, this was modified a little bit from Falconia. It's very slight. You know, there's six pairs of wings here in Falconia. There are five pairs of wings. So I always wondered about that. Whether or not Miro's correcting it to directly represent the god hand having five pairs. And where here was a generic. Well, yeah, that's a good question, but uh, I wonder if he I wonder if know. he went that far. Maybe. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, um, the next episode continues directly and we Mazgus uh we see we see him do it again, you know. <laughs> Prostrate himself again and the bird ban he's gotta have a better name than that, right? <laughs> but that's his name for for now. Uh, explains that Mazgus does this uh, every morning and every night a thousand times a day, which is a little extreme. And we see uh, him finally finish and uh, address them. It also explains his nice flat face. Yeah. <laughs> yes, which Serpico points out, like, oh, that's the mystery behind <laughs> his face. Is 
I actually wonder if you did this a thousand times a day. You probably wouldn't look chiseled like a rock. You'd look something like... You'd I don't be know, pummeled like, into, you know... <laughs> like, you look like a knotted mess, yeah. you know? Well, at the, sa- at the same time... That's, that is what his face turns into when uh, he gets angry. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> he says that he can um, hardly feel his legs from all this, you know, banging around on the church floors. And then he cuts very... Um, briskly to this uh, story about the the nature of this temple and says that uh, a, a wise man or a sage was once imprisoned here by Emperor Geyseric, uh, who continued to proclaim the sins of the king to God uh, while enduring multiple tortures until uh, an angel was made to descend. And he says that this area must have, uh, must be a place of miracles as a result. So they, you know, he, they, this, this temple is here historically because this miracle happened here, according to legend. And now, of course, it's you know being used, or there are torture grounds, and who knows what its true purpose is now. This parable, though, or this story, you know, me and many others have connected to uh, Void for a number of reasons. Uh, one, the connection with Geyseric. Uh, if you buy that there is a past history between Void and Skull Knight based on that one little panel exchange in volume 13 then the fact that you know guys Eric ordered some guy to be tortured until you know for for whatever reason and th- for an angel to descend you can kind of see a connection here between angels and god hand members you can maybe maybe envision this being the birth of void as a god hand member yeah it makes sense it's one of the yeah it, it, the the math kind of adds up. Well, the, the math actually doesn't add up. I mean, in terms of the year, the whole 1,000 years, every 216 thing, doesn't make much sense. But everything else makes sense. <laughs> well, the thing yeah. is, uh, 1,000 years is, like, I mean, I don't get the feeling it was ever meant to be a very specific and exact number. You know, it's, it's like around mm-hmm. 1,000 years, you know, a millennia. So I don't know if uh, that will ever get to play a very definitive role. Um, I mean, yeah, it could just be one of those, you know, once every 1,000 years, this can happen, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, like you said, it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily to the day. Yeah. Anyway, Mazgus um, explains, again, the history behind this place. <clears throat> he talks about how the pain in his knees is actually, he sees it as a kind of penance, um, or at least, not penance, but... He feels no guilt for what he does, but he holds the pain very personal to his beliefs. I like that. Actually, you know, I like that he actually mutilates himself. Like he says, he can barely walk anymore and can't run at all. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think it also goes to show the uh, level of madness in this guy, where he'll torture people with no problem, but at the same time, he has no trouble like maiming himself in prayer just because you know. Yeah. So he notices that um, Farnese is hesitating about something. Maybe she, you know, is holding back on saying something. And so he compels her to, you know, confess to her, you know, what's on her mind, basically. And she basically lays it on the table. She's very direct while being very apprehensive about how she's delivering this information. She's saying that she's not sure that they're making much progress here. If the actions they're taking are truly helping people or if they're just spreading misery uh, here among the impoverished. And, um... Moscus has this like knowing smile as he launches into a second parable talking about uh, there was once a, a holy woman who looks, looks like she's dressed like a nun in these little flashbacks. So this is a three panel little parable and she, you know, she would care for the sick and the most impoverished and one day she came across someone who was laying on the side of the road dying 
and she went to embrace him, but he told her to... The fact that he was here by himself, dying on the wayside, is proof that he has lived a life of solitude and independence. And please don't disrupt that, you know, with your warmth. Don't don't take meaning away from my death. So, Mazgus basically... This is a confusing parable, first of all. It took me a long time. I don't think I really truly understood it until this reading. Because the the message of it isn't very clear until about three pages later when you finally connect the dots. Uh, Mazga starts by saying, "A person not, knows not what succeeds in helping." So, you may you may think that you are you know doing something to help someone, but the ultimate result might be different than that. Ultimately, though, what he's talking about is don't deplore distressing duties, don't deplore people's misunderstandings, and thou shalt not seek retribution for thine actions. Don't question God. He's basically laying it all in the hands of Scripture. You know, you can't even if you even if you find something deplorable to do. Uh, do it anyway. Don't don't listen to your heart. Listen to the word. Was what I took away from that message. Yeah, and I mean in a, in a very confusing message. In a practical sense, it's basically like you know good intentions. Like you may think you're helping, you know, you may think you're helping people, but you're really better off torturing them because <laughs> because you know that's going to help them in the long run. Whereas by not torturing them, they're going to be damned to you know, go to hell <laughs> or, or the equivalent. I think, yeah, I'm not sure actually, uh, I would have to check, but I wonder if this uh, little story has been correctly translated by Dark Horse actually. That might be why it's confusing to you. Well, yeah, it does seem uh, yeah, it's, it seems a little uh, little vague. But well, Serpico also looks very confused from this, from his takeaway. Well, the thing is, uh, I think he, I think he can smell the the bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> M- Mosgu's take is basically to just like that face is obeying blindly and not thinking about what you do or about what's right or not. Yeah, the, basically, you can't comprehend what's good or bad for people in the long yep. run. Yeah. you know, you think you're helping them, but you're really damning them. You just and vice versa. I, I just, I just fail to see how that particular parable expresses that. Yeah, clearly. well. The message. The message like, doesn't It's just like, very, it's just like well church. Me. I mean, did you ever get that stuff in church? <laughs> <laughs> it's like Mayura is so good. He just came yeah. up with his own like nonsensical church story. Anyway, um, I wanted to comment that <laughs> after a revelation that might relate to Geyseric and, and Void, people often look to hear and say, "Oh, it's probably Slan because it's a woman." Like, oh yeah, no, there's there's absolutely no reason to think that this is Slan. There's no other context given for this. It, you know, it could have been any woman those, at any those time. Those kids earlier, were they really Moskis' helpers? Or were they Ubik and Conrad? As there you kid, go. That, that little mask might have been his face. Yeah. That guy was really tall. That was him on their shoulders. <laughs> Tie it all together. Yeah, there's no reason to think that. I mean, you can think that if you want. There's just no basis for it. It's just a woman, a holy woman. Anyway. Um, how does Maybe this that's the in? metaphor for the story is the, you know... The supposed holy woman holding dying men in the warmth of her embrace. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so <clears throat> the final scene, the final sequence here, as they walk away, Farnese seems almost um, like the answer did 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 her good. Like she found what she was looking yeah, for. It, it reinforced uh, her belief that just God and for God, you know, they should act and they shouldn't question anything. Right. So yeah. But Serpico is less convinced. But he said he comments on the, the argument itself being flawless, but the the actual facts in it are seem shady. Yeah, and while uh, Farnese, like you said, did a good to hear that, I think. Well, I mean, I know that he didn't completely alle- alleviate uh, her doubts. You know, it just reassured her for a while, but we know it it won't last mm-hmm. very long. Right. 
And we see again the Behirid Apostle having witnessed that. I guess the kind of takeaway there is, you know, he understands the kind of person Mosgus is um, in terms of how that'll play out yeah. later. <clears throat> Moving on, we uh, once again, we're back with uh, Nina and Casca uh, as they roam through the, the refugee camp. I like how Casca's playing with the kids. I thought that was a cute, cute scene because she, you know, she's always enjoyed young kids and like particularly young girls. Yeah, yeah she's having a harmless fun. I also like that Nina is a uh, Helping people, you know, taking care of, uh, you know, giving stuff to an old lady, everything. So it's she's still doing what Luca recommends, which is uh, to play as a community helper. Yeah. And we're introduced introduced to uh, Joachim. Uh, well, I definitely did not know how to pronounce his name until Joachim Phoenix <laughs> came around. No, dude, well, that's, that was, uh, yeah, jo- that's, that's kind of, uh, you know, shameful. <laughs> It's not a very common name. Uh, really? That I've heard. Yeah. yeah oh, really. well, it's more common in Europe than I guess. Yep. Precisely. Anyway, uh, he obviously has a relationship with Nina, or at least he likes to think he does. <laughs> it's, it's very clear here that's, that that's she's harsh. That, <laughs> that's what? harsh. Well, I think it's interesting, though, because, you know, he obviously ha- is, is more interested in her than, than a client relationship. And I think Nina either doesn't realize that at the moment. Oh, she does. She's trying to she push does. him away. She she's she so yeah. does know that he likes her, but she doesn't want him. Mm-hmm. Or maybe mm-hmm. she does. You know, I mean, th- their relationship is uh, the epitome of a complicated, you know, relationship. Like the thing you put complicated on Facebook for, it's just that you know where. <laughs> yeah, he's he's really in love with her, but he's a loser, and uh, you know, mm-hmm. and she's kind of. Yeah, very complicated as well. So I, I like the relationship, but like you said earlier, Nina is a hard person to like, and in the same way, uh, Joachim is a hard person to like as well. You know, I mean, it's hard to identify with the guy. He's a uh, yeah, he's just a loser. Well, it's also it's interesting that this is someone that she actually does have power over, and you can see how mm-hmm. she treats him differently than you know. Obviously, yeah. she's someone who is you know scared and you know. Like we just got done hearing about how scared she is and how she can't stand the world, yet she's sort of lording over this boy and you know, sort of challenging his manhood, you know, and saying, "Well, if you're brave enough, you know, come see me tonight at midnight." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> After it's, you know, uh, also yelling at him. You, you, I mean, you would guess that someone who's so weak and so bullied by everyone and everything and afraid of everything would be more understanding. But the one guy that likes her, she's like, she's a real, you know, bitch to him. Pretty much, like she, she just tells. But I think him. a lot of that is because uh, a lot of it is she hates herself too. I mean, just the way she talks about herself to him, yeah, and is sort true. of dismissive mm-hmm. of his feelings for her because you know, really, you, you know, you like me, the shape I'm in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because she, because she's almost she's almost rejecting the idea that he could like her, you know. Yeah, that, just for her. That's true. I think uh, the fact he loves her is something she she has trouble standing. Doesn't trust. Yeah, that's why she tells yeah. him. That's why she first talked to him as if he was just uh, an average client and then reminds him that she's sick and uh, not lightly sick. She uh, urges him to come down to the riverside if if he truly does love her. Um, I wrote down here in my notes, teens and teen romance <laughs> for the next scene. Uh, as the time passes, I like how she runs into her room and you know, throws her head on a pillow. Yeah. And, and and plays bright eyes on the, the stereo. <laughs> While Luca looks on like, oh, 
<laughs> you know, at the same time, I think it's a it's a cute scene, and I I, I like yeah. who it's uh, I like who it's who it's shown. You know, I like the fact that she actually does run and you know jumps on her pillow and looks sad and melancholy or whatever after having talked to him like that because it shows that she actually cares about him too, but she doesn't want to show it. Like she's playing tough, but she's not. Yeah. So um. Night pass. Time passes and night falls, and Joachim is out there waiting for her. And she asks him if he loves her, and he says he does. And she asks if he can die with her, knowing that her condition, what her condition she is. Looks, she looks. She looks pretty crazy in that shot. Right. I think it's worth mentioning that even when she first appears, she looks like she's you know haunted or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Grave. It's uh yeah. you know you can tell it's a serious thing. Yeah. She says, "Could you, could you could you fall to hell if it was together with me?" And he says, "Yes." Like, oh, like every cool. guy whatsoever who wants to get laid. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, love sure. you. Oh yeah, yeah. I'll I marry promise. you. Sure, I'll take care of the so kids. So are we gonna are we gonna fall right now? <laughs> <laughs> if I could, if I'm with you, and um, she she says, "Where are we going?" She says, "Where this the frightful god is not the edge of the world." And as they go into the distance, Luca sees that they're walking yeah, away. Yeah, because Luca, uh, Jose, when when Nina came and jumped on our bed and everything, Luca looked at her and she knew something was up, and that's why she's following. Yeah, keeping an eye on her. Um, and then Casca follows because Luca's left. So it's this train of people here. Really love this shot as the specters start gathering. That that shot of where the entire sky is just like swimming oh, yeah. with specters. Yeah, it's also pretty scary, man. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, of course, yeah. Scary, beautiful. And the final page. It looks like it's from a painting. Just, I love the hatching, the super complex, dark Well, just the other way he frames it, literally. Yeah, the three levels of action, right in the foreground, the middle, middle, and on the horizon as well, as they go into this cave that's being lit by something. Yeah, this looks like something, like, from Paradise Lost. (laughs) Totally, yeah. Actually, specifically the Gustave Doré paint, uh, yeah. illustrations of Paradise Lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. And it does indeed look like that. Yeah. Well, that does it. We made it. Holy crap. Yeah, we actually... Perfect timing. Yeah. I, I correctly predicted we would be finished in two hours. Yeah, it's a once-in-a-thousand-year event. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Not not exactly once-every-thousand-years, but sometime yeah, around. Probably, yeah, probably, <laughs> Well, fantastic. I'm glad we are able to do that. So we'll be back uh, a couple more weeks. We'll finish up Volume 18. I think we can probably do that. Yeah. I don't have a lot to say about the sex scene. <laughs> so we'll get s- speed right through that. We'll see. Well, there's, there's interesting things to say about that scene, like every other scene. Absolutely are. I'm, I'm, I'm merely saying it's going to be awkward for me as I describe the intercourse. <laughs> I'll take care of it. Don't worry. Fantastic. I will pin you down for that episode. As is signing up for those episodes. Yeah. Volunteer for episodes now. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Skullcast. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. And stay tuned. Ciao. Later. So